So as we work our way through Mark's gospel, just to repeat that a little bit, um, in chapters 11 and 12, we're getting towards the end of the story. We, we know what happens in the end. Jesus dies. So it's inevitable that there's some, some tension building that leads to that, the conflict um, uh, that creates the crisis around which his death is centred. Um, uh, spoiler, you know, he comes back to life again. So it's a, it's a happy story in the end. But um, there's nevertheless some very real tension building. And I'm going to read from... Mark chapter 11, verse 27, through to Mark chapter 12, verse 17. Again, they came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes and the elders came to him and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven, or was it of human origin? Answer me. They argued with one another. If we say from heaven, he will say then, uh, why then did you not believe him? Uh, But shall we say of human origin, they were afraid of the crowd, for all um, regarded John as truly a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Then neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. And then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season came, he sent a slave to the tenants to collect from them his share of the produce of the vineyard. But they seized him and beat him. And sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent another slave to them. And this one they beat over the head and insulted. And then they sent another and that one they killed. And so it was with many others. Some they beat, others they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. When they realized that he had told this parable against them, they wanted to arrest him. But they feared the crowd, so they left him and went away. And then they sent to him some Pharisees and some Herodians to trap him in what he said. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you putting me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me see it. And they brought one. And then he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? And they answered, The emperor's. Jesus said to them, Give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. 
<clears throat> I wish I had Jesus' ability to answer a question in the spur of the moment like that. I usually think of the right thing to say about three weeks after I've had the conversation. <clears throat> but I guess it was a mark of his authority that he had the capacity to do that. And authority is, is an interesting and in many ways, I think, quite an elusive concept to explore. The origins of the word are based around the concept of authorship, authority. Um, so authority, simply defined, is the exercise of power based on ownership or some sort of originating initiative. And that explains many of the types of authority that we might see in our society. It explains, for example, the authority of a parent over a child or an owner over a business or an inventor over a product. But authority, of course, has become a bit more complex than that and there tends to be two types of other types of authority that we commonly see in the world around us. And we might label those as positional authority and personal authority. So positional authority is the inherent power that gets assigned to people who hold certain positions or offices. Uh, teachers, politicians, police would be examples of this. And there's usually this well-ordered and highly developed structured system behind those positions supporting them allowing their authority to mean something in the real world. So if you're driving along in your car and you see the flashing lights behind you of a police car, you pull over. Why? Well, it's not because of the personal authority that policeman has, but because you know that behind the office of police officer, there is this whole system that if you try and get away and try and take off, um, it won't just be that policeman that you're having to contend with, but the whole police force in the city will be chasing you with helicopters and then you'll have to encounter not just the police force, but also a whole judicial system that will charge you with certain things and then there's a, a correctional system that you'll have to face up to as well. And so there's, there's this infrastructure behind the position of the police officer that lends authority to them. But of course, it's not always the case that the person in a particular position of authority, it's not always the case that they have the most authority in the circumstance. Uh, the boss, for example, in a workplace, doesn't always have the most influence. Sometimes there's an employee who, because of their personal qualities uh, or their competence or their emotional intelligence or their relational capacity, that they're actually the person who makes the place run and tick and holds it together or just, you know, who, who exerts their will, um, even if it's not always the best thing. It's not their position, but their personal attributes that give them authority. And this morning's Bible reading is really, is it still morning? This afternoon's Bible reading is really about two questions that have to do with the, the issue of authority. Two different groups of people who have positional authority come and they ask Jesus, who really has no official position whatsoever, but incredible personal authority, where his authority comes from. And these two groups of questioners represent two recognised sources of authority in Jesus' day, religious authorities and civil authorities. Both are obviously feeling quite threatened by Jesus. So let me just explain a little bit of the context here. Uh, in the first part of chapter 11, the bit I didn't read, Jesus has triumphantly entered the city of Jerusalem. You know, the people line the streets and they wave palm branches and he came riding in on a donkey. 
And um, that was an action on its own that would have raised all sorts of questions in the minds of both religious and political leaders about what Jesus was claiming for himself and maybe what he was planning to do next. Uh, but then a, bit, a little bit later in chapter 11, it tells us that as Jesus enters the city, instead of turning left and heading down to the Roman garrison to rid the city of foreign rule, as the crowds were desperately hoping he would, he instead turns right and goes straight to the temple where he overturns the tables of the money changers and drives them out with the words, my father's house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And all that happened in this passage immediately prior to um, uh, the, the, the part that I've, I've read to you. So it's not surprising that authorities are just trying to figure out who Jesus is, what his intentions are, and by what authority it is that he sees himself performing these sorts of quite paradigm-creating actions. He doesn't seem to be part of the religious establishment. His authority doesn't seem to rely on the massive and complex edifice of Judaism. Uh, in fact, so far, he's really just been at odds with the recognised religious groupings. So it seems unlikely that he's going to try and work his way into those well-established religious structures. Yes, he carried the title rabbi, but that's a pretty generic term that just means teacher and gave him authority over those who were immediately his disciples. But that didn't really make them part of the official recognised religious structures per se, uh, with the right or the authority to act as Jesus was. Nor did Jesus seem to be appealing to any sort of civil authority for the justification of his actions. He wasn't raising an army. He wasn't seeking funding of any sort. Up to this point, he'd stayed right away from the political centres of the country, spending most of his time in the backwater places like Galilee and the Decapolis and the Judea-Samaria border. That's not how you build influence or develop a political profile hanging around in those areas. So, so it's all a bit of a mystery. The question of Jesus' authority was a puzzle to both groups, to the religious leaders, to the political leaders. So let's have a look at the two questions that they put to Jesus and see if we can discern any clues as to how Jesus saw uh, himself possessing authority. Now, the first group is obviously the religious delegation. Jesus is in the temple. The question is put to him by the chief priests, by the teachers of the law or the scribes and the elders. And they come to him and they say, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? And Jesus responds with a question of his own. He says, do you remember John the Baptist? Remember him? Slightly eccentric behaviour, out in the wilderness, strange diet weird wardrobe, but had the courage to confront Herod and lost his head for it. Prior to that, though, he was, of course, dunking people in the Jordan River. Huge movement, turning people back to God, dealing with sin, taking repentance seriously. Do you think that John was anointed by God or do you think he was just another bloke doing some good things? around the place, is my paraphrase of Jesus' question back to them. Now, a lot of people read this passage and they think, oh, that's just a politician's trick. Jesus is answering a question with a question, uh, avoiding having to answer by deflecting the questioners with a question of his own. But in actual fact, this is much more than a rhetorical sidestep. For within the answer to Jesus' question 
is the answer to the religious leader's question. If they answer the question Jesus puts to them, they will then have the answer to their question to him. Jesus responded, uh, his responding question invited his interrogators to consider John the Baptist, who was widely regarded by the people, by the masses, as a prophet, as a man of God, as a genuine religious hero. And it was John's baptism that Jesus, it was in John's baptism that Jesus had been anointed for ministry himself. So if John was from God, then the anointing that John gave to Jesus carried the authority of God. And you might recall it was quite a special baptism with the heavens opening, the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, a voice booming from the heavens, this is my son whom I love in him I am well pleased. Now these religious teachers didn't want to admit that Jesus was acting with God's authority, but to admit that they would have to challenge the very popular idea that John was actually carrying forward God's agenda, which would put them out of step with the people, so they were stuck. And they chose the discreet option, simply responding, we don't know. Why were they so against Jesus? Well, I guess because he bucked the trends. He challenged the system. He called assumptions into question. Judaism had developed over centuries into this complex system of religion with enormous authority being given to the priests and the religious teachers. They had real power in the nation and they loved it. It served them very well. And then along comes Jesus and completely disregards their structures of power and authority. Popular amongst religious scholars in those days was the practice of establishing their own uh, rules and regulations and teaching based on the wider scholarly community. Oh, does that sound familiar? Maybe it does, um, as you learn in an academic institution. But when a rabbi taught, they always added to any claim they made phrases like, according to rabbi so-and-so, or according to this passage or that passage from the Torah or one of the other accepted writings. And when Jesus came along again and again in the Gospels, I guess he occasionally referred to the Old Testament, but it says the people were amazed because he spoke as one who had authority himself. Very rarely does Jesus appeal to anyone else to establish his authority. He does everything in his own name. He heals in his own name. He exercises power over evil in his own name. He corrects others in his own name. He teaches in his own name. If you can imagine the horror that it might produce if a student submitted a PhD without any footnotes whatsoever, if their whole thesis just contained their own ideas, that might give you a feeling for the way that Jesus was perceived by the religious authorities of his day, just as a maverick, someone out on his own, doing his own thing. So that was the religious establishment and their question to Jesus. And not long after that, Jesus received another question by a group trying to trap him, trying to get him to say something that would incriminate him and give them an excuse to bring him before the courts. The text says that the Pharisees and the Herodians were working hand in hand as they asked this question about paying taxes to Caesar. Now, Pharisees and Herodians lived at opposite ends of the political spectrum in first century Israel. Pharisees were opposed to Roman occupation the Herodians were in favour of Roman occupation. 
Uh, normally they were enemies. It's very interesting that they were working together, though, here to try and trick Jesus. Gives you a feel for just how much people were unsettled by Jesus, that they felt they needed to work together to try and get him out of the way. And so they ask him a question about tax. Now, this is not just a general taxation question, but it's about a particular tax because there were all sorts of taxes in Jesus' day, taxes of goods and services. But this is referring to an imperial tax, which was essentially a head tax or a census tax. It was levied by the Roman emperor and every year, every person in the Roman Empire had to pay a tax of one denarius, which was about a day's wage simply for being alive, for the pleasure of being a subject of the Roman Empire, even although most of them were actually conquered by Roman armies and made slaves of the empire against their will. Now, when this tax was first put in place 25 years earlier, it was so offensive, not the amount of the tax, but the reason for the tax, that there was an armed revolt in Judea. A revolutionary called Judas the Galilean led an uprising and did three things. First of all, he called on all Jews to refuse to pay the head tax. Secondly, with an armed band, he went and he cleansed the temple. He got rid of all the foreigners, he threw out the Gentiles, all of the Romans, he cleansed the temple. And the third thing he did is he said, now let's allow God to be our king, not Caesar, we're going to bring in the kingdom of God. We're going to get rid of injustice. We're going to get rid of oppression. We're going to, to, to bring in the kingdom of God. Within a few months, of course, Judas the Galilean was uh, rounded up, caught, executed by the Roman authorities. But it's now 25 years later. And I can't help wondering if those with longer members, uh, memories were probably wondering is history going to be repeated here? Can you see the connections between the two? First of all, Jesus had built his entire teaching around the kingdom of God. He'd been talking about the kingdom for years. Secondly, he had just cleansed the temple. He'd just thrown out the money changers and the animal sellers. So now the question is put to him, are you going for the trifecta, Jesus? Are you also going to mount an armed political revolt and resist the head tax are you, Jesus, going to tell us to stop paying this imperial tax? And so for the questioners, it's the perfect trap. Because if Jesus says, yes, pay the tax, it was such an unpopular concept that he would lose face with the people, with the crowds, and really be considered a traitor to Israel. And the Messiah could never be a traitor. But if he said no... He could be charged with inciting opposition to the Roman Empire, which, if reported to the governor, could result in his own death. It's the trickiest of questions which drew from Jesus the most brilliant of answers. So brilliant, the text says, it leaves them speechless. He says, bring me a denarius. That's the amount that you had to pay for the tax. And either he holds it up or someone holds it up and, and, and he says, whose image is on it? The emperors, they reply, then give to the emperor what is his and give to God what is God's. Now, there's all sorts of interesting little intricacies and subtexts going, subplots going on here. First of all, by using the word image, Jesus is really saying, give to Caesar only what has Caesar's image on it. Anything with his image on it, give it to him. It's his. They're his coins. And, you know, technically the the coins of the realm were minted out of the wealth of the ruler. So Jesus is saying it's his money, give it to him. It's got his image on it. 
but give to God what has God's image on it, is what's implied. In other words, Jesus is saying the money might belong to Caesar, but you don't. Render to God what is God's means that Caesar doesn't get the ultimate allegiance in your life. And that was a dangerously subversive idea, very countercultural, deeply challenging to the political assumptions of the day. But he hadn't told them not to pay their taxes either. It's just so clever. And I don't think it takes too much imagination to suggest that Jesus, Jesus the Galilean, is envisioning a revolution here, but quite a different sort of revolution than the one Judas the Galilean had envisioned 25 years earlier. Jesus was advocating neither acceptance of the system nor was he advocating straightforward political revolt. You see, a revolution based on the use of power over others, like every other revolution, Jesus knew would ultimately fail. Normally revolutions, as Lord Acton once quipped, commenting on the Russian Revolution in the early part of the 20th century, just turns out one set of sinners from government and replaces them with another. Jesus was bringing not just another revolution, but a whole new type of revolution. You might say a revolutionary revolution. And this would be based not on external coercion, but rather on inner compulsion. Not making people, not making people do the things that he wanted them to, but by changing their hearts through the work and the presence of his spirit within them so that they wanted to do that which lined up with God's purpose and agenda. Having that disposition required one to first identify and submit to the true king. I wonder if anybody knows what words were written on a denarius. Historically, we have quite a few of them in museums. The image on it was the image of Tiberius Caesar, the emperor, and the inscription read, Tiberius Caesar, son of the god Augustus, Pontifex Maximus, which means high priest. So basically, the coin says, Caesar is king, son of God, high priest. Those who had ears to hear and eyes to see realized that Jesus, while saying nothing legally wrong, was actually directly challenging the most powerful empire the world had seen to that point. Tiberius and Jesus, both claiming to preside over kingdoms, both saying, I'm the son of God, both claiming divine authority, which, of course, rightfully belongs to a high priest. And just in case anyone missed it, to clarify this juxtaposition, Mark inserts between these two questions a little parable of Jesus that leaves the reader in no doubt whatsoever who Jesus was and what he was claiming about himself, which is, of course, the parable of the tenants. So in Jesus' day, quite a bit of property was owned by foreigners who lived overseas or locals who then went and lived elsewhere. And they left tenants to manage the land, to send through the profits. Absentee ownership was bitterly resented by the local managers who worked their butts off only to see most of the profits being sent somewhere else. So at harvest time, in the parable, the owner sends a servant to collect his share of the harvest, but the tenants of the land beat him, send him away empty-handed. This happens a number of times, with the servants being progressively more wounded each time. Finally, the owner sends his son, hoping the tenants will respect his authority as a blood heir to the owner himself. 
probably assuming that the owner is elderly and unlikely to calm himself, the tenants say, no, let's kill the heir. And then the property might be up for grabs because there was, of course, a law in uh, Jewish law that said if a property is left unattended for 12 years, it could be claimed by the occupant if they could demonstrate consecutive occupancy during that time. So they kill the son. Now you can see how Mark addresses both these questions with the parable. Every Jew listening to Jesus would assume that, metaphorically speaking, the owner of the vineyard is God. And Jesus aligns his authority directly with that vineyard owner. And he claims to be the son of the vineyard owner. Not just another prophet, not just another messenger, but the very son of God. And so Jesus and Caesar are two people claiming the same things. Both kings of a kingdom, both sons of God, both high priests. But boy, are they different to one another. One owns all the coins in the world. The other has to ask for a coin when he wants to use it in a sermon illustration. He literally didn't have a coin to his name. One does everything he can to clutch power, to control the world around him, to clutch power to himself. The other takes every opportunity he can to give power away. His mission is to empower others. One has an army to kill everyone who opposes him. The other one, well, he wants to get rid of his enemies also, but not by killing them, but by letting himself be killed to create a way for them to become his friends. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, where did Jesus' authority come from? Well, it wasn't given to him by any human structure. He didn't get it from a political system from, or from a religious system. It simply came from God, the one and only living God, the author of life, the definer of reality, the sustainer of creation. It flowed out of, at the human level, the integrity and the authenticity that marked Jesus' relationship with his Father. Baptised by John, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and daily sustained in prayer and obedience, obedience that led to death on a cross, Jesus became the stone that the builders rejected, but in doing so was the cornerstone, the crucial piece of the puzzle that held the whole building together, that, that created the context in which God's kingdom could come and could impact the lives of everyone. Where does our authority come from? Well, if we look to the example of the early church, I think we'd have to say same place as Jesus' authority. Not from a religious institution, nor from a government, though we're not opposed to rendering unto either of those what is due to them. Our authority doesn't come from power or money or buildings or titles or anything that people usually defer to to establish their authority. It flows, like Jesus, out of our connection to God in Christ. It overflows from the Spirit's work in our lives. As we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, these things are added to us as well. We humble ourselves under God's mighty hand that he might lift us up at the appropriate time. We render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. Remembering that Jesus implied that you and I bear the image of God. We belong to him. 
We are his and he is ours. Our authority isn't positional. It's actually not even so much personal as it is relational. If you abide in me, my words abide in you, then ask whatever you will and it will be done for you, said Jesus. Let's pray. So just as we take a minute to, uh, to pause and to think, I'd just love you to ponder the question, does Jesus have the authority that he deserves in your life? Does Jesus have the authority that he deserves in your life? And if not, you might like to ask him, what are the things that stop that authority being demonstrated in you? What are the blockages? What are the things you're holding on to that prevent him having his way in your life? Because the invitation of the gospel is not to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and to make ourselves good so that we can have God's authority flowing through us. Rather, it is to come to him in our brokenness and in our humanity and our humility uh, and just to bring him that which is wrong in our lives, to lay it before his feet, to allow it to be dealt with at the cross and then invite his spirit to have his way in our lives. Invite the Holy Spirit to be at work in us, changing us, transforming us. And so, Jesus, we just want to bring these thoughts and these things to you. Um, There is no hope in our own strength or ability that we can become the people you want us to be. Um, But you offer to work in us. You, You offer to allow us to connect with you in a living way through Christ and in the Spirit's power, so that we can become the people you want us to be, so that you get the glory for all the transformation that takes place in our lives. And so we pray that you would be at work in us and through us as we commit our way to you, Jesus, the cornerstone, the one whom the builders rejected, who's become the crucial piece in humanity's story. We ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen.